0: Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chacumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host and partner in crime, Lisette Trujillo.
1: Hello, everyone. Lisette here, she, her, Eya. I cannot tell you enough how excited I am about our interview today. They are someone I admire so much.
0: This is episode 12, and we are lucky to have a movement leader speaking with us today.
1: That's right. Today, we're interviewing the fairy godfather of trans kids, trans activist and movement lawyer, Chase Strangio.
0: I am so looking forward to this show, folks. So welcome once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Lisa, I go from not speaking or seeing you in over a week to seeing you like back to back. What's good, universe? Fill me in on all the other stuff we didn't get to talk about when we last spoke.
1: Honestly, I'm so grateful for a quiet week. My inner introvert is thriving. I've been able to focus on work, a little bit of advocacy and catching up on laundry, which I weirdly find relaxing. But like I just told you before we started recording, it is hot in Arizona, like hot. And so that could be why I'm like low energy vibing. But something that I am excited about is that Jose and I are house hunting, and it's kind of scary because we're first-time homebuyers. But also, it's like while we do have deep roots in a in AZ, this for us is like further cementing that we're not leaving, regardless of what policies or crazy shenanigans they try to do next legislative session. Um, last year was really really scary. And so it's been weird to have a Democratic governor. I didn't trust it at first. I still sometimes don't, but we get to focus on expanding our lives in a way that I had not expected to do anytime soon. What about you, Stephen? What's going on?
0: So let's just back up a minute because you said it's 108 degrees.
1: Oh, so hot. And we're going to hit like 114 It'll get hotter.
0: I can't even I can't even wrap my mind around that much heat. Like I, I'm I'm Nigerian, like I'm from Africa. And <laughs> like I know equatorial hot. I don't know 114 hot. Like that's some next level ish.
1: Oh, it's so you just wear a lot of cotton. It's so hot. I don't know. Drink a lot of water. Try to it. stay hydrated.
0: <laughs> wear cotton butt naked with a fan <laughs> on. all day what are you talking about it's
1: too much slash. like that's just <laughs> dangerous if you can't do that you gotta wear cotton <laughs>
0: it's, 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 some
1: sort of gauze
0: <laughs> okay okay all right I'm, I'm gonna try to just i'm just gonna let that go let let go and let god with that heat because that don't make no kind of sense <sighs> and congratulations on the house um I know that must be an exciting time. but house hunting, rather. Um, I remember when we were looking for our house, we saw plenty of duds, and that was primarily because the realtor that I was found that I I was using rather wasn't from this area and was only trying to show me ha- houses in like crappy areas, thinking I would be like, okay, well, what if I spent more money? What if I had a little more money in my budget? That wasn't happening. Like Nicole kicked her to the curb, quick pass in a hurry, got me with her realtor who was amazing. Jay, awesome. Um, So make sure you're dealing with someone who really, really knows their shit, knows the area, knows the homes, knows the schools, like not some joker realtor. I mean, you've been there long enough that you probably could do it yourself, but make sure you got somebody who is not just trying to catch a check, but is actually trying to find you the home that you're looking for.
1: Yeah, we're really excited with who we found. Actually, um, you know, I told you that I went to Catholic school. Mm -hmm. And so she went to a different Catholic school, but we're all interconnected. So she's friends with friends that I'm friends with. So she knows the area. I'm happy. Okay.
0: All right. All right. Um, All right. So what did I do? What have I done? So I spent today, like I'm going to start with today doing yard work. It was probably the most fulfilling thing that I've done today because i mowed the lawn, front and back, trimmed, blue, edged. And then I wanted to like, take a look at the house from the street because I did all this work. And there was this branch hanging down, blocking my view. So I cut it down. <laughs> so I cut down the branch. Oh and then my was, God. And I cut down another branch. So I ended up pruning this tree. It's like one of the city trees, so they should have pruned it, but they're never going to prune it. So I pruned the tree. And then I was like, oh, I pruned some of my trees. Then I stripped all the branches of the leaves. Then I cut up all the branches into little into limbs. Then I broke all the limbs. I, I have six leaf bags and three garbage bags full of limbs and leaves in my front yard. Like that's how busy I got. It was so, so therapeutically good. I was loving it. So It sounds
1: satisfying. I thought you were going to say like you had some wood for fall or something.
0: No, no. Like it's, it's, it's not
1: substantial.
0: Know, so I probably could have saved the wood and used the wood. And, you know, when the fall came, put the wood in the fireplace or put in the fire pit. That's just way too much work. I don't know if it's dry enough. I don't know if there's bugs. I don't bring the bugs in the house. Oh, little well, that's
1: true. That's bimbing. smart.
0: I was just like, "Mm, yeah, I'm just going to pay. I don't know what kind of smoke it's going to be. Is it going to be smoky wood? So I was just like, there's too much, too much thinking going on. I just want this this limb gone. Now the limb is gone. And And now you can see. And now I can see. I'm trying to tell you, my my house has such curb appeal. I'm going to have to send you pictures of the shot that I took after I cleared the limb out because I could see my house from the street. Uh, I can't
1: wait. Gorgeous is what I'm assuming.
0: Um, so yesterday was Chima's birthday. He turned 20. So we did Happy the- birthday. Happy birthday to you. Stevie Wonder- um, yeah. And, you know, got a little cake. So ever since he turned 18 and he can get his first, oh, I think he got his first tattoo at 16 because he can go with his parents. But ever since he could get his first tattoo, he's just been tattoo crazy. So every birthday, every person, every every event where he can get a gift for me, he always wants a tattoo. So he's getting some like sunburst tattoo on his shoulder and then he's going to finish the leg tattoo. So we kind of talked about tattoos um, for his birthday and like scheduling the appointment. Um, so that was like another thing. Um, it's really just been like work. Oh no. Oh my goodness. Um, so on Thursday, Lucina and I did another. Screening talkback for Firelight Media, and so Hearst the the dads were screened alongside of Mama Bear's amazing film, by the way, and it's the craziest premise. Essentially, it is a movie about I'm going to say white evangelical Christian women. Yes, whose- I know them. <laughs> I, I'm very familiar. Whose children are LGBTQ plus? And yeah. now they've had a change of heart. And so this movie is about like following these women who were staunchly anti-LGBTQ, who are now staunchly advocating for their children. And I was just like, mm-hmm, I know that's right. And it was just so funny. Like literally I saw what the movie was about and I laughed out loud because I was just like, ain't that a bitch? Ain't that a bitch? Now go and talk to your husband's Go and talk to all of your pastors and the ministers and all of those people who are saying that our children are demons and mutants and imps. Because now look, your children are also of that ilk. What you finna do? So I was just like, I was very surprised. And the great thing about it was a black woman made that movie. And I was like, you better work. So with Lucina and and this woman, I can't remember her name exactly. I'm going to mispronounce. Liz it so Dyer. Not... No. It wasn't Liz Dyer? Oh. It was like somebody, I'll look it up, but it was not her. And and this sister was a sister, bonafide in the, like, and she's like a, like an award-winning, like I'm, I'm remiss because I do not know her name, but this conversation was amazing. It was, it was moderated by a, uh, a transgender Individual as well, so it was like it was the real day. I really, I really enjoyed it. It was a great, great, great conversation. It's streaming on YouTube. It's available on YouTube. Rather, it was it was posted live. It was streamed live or broadcast live on YouTube while we were doing. It, but it's also available on YouTube. So I'm gonna find you the link and I'm gonna send it to you. And that went really well. So all of those I can't things. Wait to
1: are, watch it. I'll have to check it out.
0: Yes. Yes. um Yeah. So yes, there's a whole. Child, there's so much going on. But, <laughs> but before we get into all the things that we have going on, we got a full show today. So let's get to today's topics and get to our guest interview
1: today. I'm so excited.
0: So Lisette, let's talk about Greek life. You and I are alum of Greek letter fraternities and sororities. You're an alum mm-hmm. of Kappa Delta Chi, Um, and uh, a Latinx sorority. And I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Oh, six! And these organizations and relationships are still so important to both of us in our lives.
1: That's right. I was so involved in my sorority for decades. um, And the organization and relationships I built are still some of the closest. This morning, I literally had brunch with like five of my sorority sisters. I know the same is for you, and so I wanted to bring up this story that came out on the 19th regarding a non-binary student being stripped of their letters. Could you imagine being stripped of your letters? Absolutely, I would not. be mm-mm, so upset. Faguzman is a senior at Saint Lawrence University, and they say that when they were when they considered joining Greek life, they first asked their university, stating that. They reached out to the university, which went on to seek official approval from each of the sororities on campus that Guzmán could rush. That included approval from National KAI Omega organization. Um, that Guzmán, as a non-binary person whose gender identity encompasses womanhood, was was considered qualified to rush.
0: That's right. I, I remember reading that, and and so they rushed KAI Omega they were initiated, but then nationals informed them that there there were concerns about their membership and that they could be a member, but couldn't publicize it, like, or could not publicize their membership. But later, whatever, forget that kerfuffle, they were later told that their membership was revoked. And that is not siblinghood at all.
1: No, not at all. Especially, I feel like, I think we're seeing this more in sororities than we are in fraternities. But then again, I'm not part of (laughs) the fraternal orders, or like I don't know. But in my own sorority, I have siblings who have transitioned past graduation, and we all still embrace them fully in our own siblingship. It's that's what it's about—is like creating connection, networking, especially for um, you know, BIPOC, Latinx organizations. Like many of us are first you know, first generation college students. I feel so upset for Fah Guzman. I hope they get their letters back.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things where, A, I I totally fault the national organization for doing like a bait and switch. And, you know, again, from from what I read, it wasn't just Fah Guzman who was reaching out. There were other members of the organization who similarly had reached out to the national organization and similarly were told that, yeah, it was good. Yes, they could, they could pledge. Yes, they could be inducted. And, you know, not quite sure what it was about their membership that had them changing their mind, because ultimately you don't say yes, if you're going to turn around and say, no, you don't do that. And in my organization, we do not yet have a, an individual who I'm aware of at this point, who transitioned um, either before or after, and so that's not something that I've dealt with. Although we do have, you know, um, gay members of our organization who were, you know, gay before or gay after, but you know, like that's neither here nor there. The reality is, if you're an organization that has criteria that allows individuals to join your organization, then those criteria should be above board. And once an individual goes through whatever that initiation process is, they should be afforded all of the, you know, the benefits that come with being a member. And there needs to be a valid basis. Like they, you have to do something completely untoward to have that membership revoked.
1: And it's not like rush is like three days and it's over. It's a whole semester or sometimes a year for certain orgs. And like your new member ed is constantly in communications with nationals so this just feels shady Mm
0: yes absolutely shady but you know let's let's not go too deep because again we got a full show now let's talk about arizona because yesterday or the day before your governor signed two executive orders and i quote The governor's latest executive actions announced Tuesday direct the agency that oversees state employee health plans to remove a prohibition on coverage for gender affirming surgery that was put in place in 2017 and to prohibit state agencies from promoting or supporting conversion therapy, a scientifically discredited practice to try to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. That is amazing news for y'all in Arizona.
1: It is so surreal to be living in a state with a democratic governor. I'm really grateful for this executive order. I can say this now because it was reported in the newspaper, but my friend Russ Toomey and the American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit in 2019 that claimed to exclude coverage for medically necessary surgery was a violation of his civil rights guaranteed under federal law and the US Constitution. It's been a really long journey for him. Um, And so with this new executive order, it's going to force them to settle his case, which is like really exciting. I'm so glad he's finally going to get the care he needs and is deserving of. Congratulations, Russ. I love you.
0: Big ups, Russ. That's awesome. Like that's, that's really hard. Like any of these plaintiffs that are putting their lives on the lines to fight these cases, are really courageous and brave, and really need to be given like the utmost respect because it's hard. Litigation is hard. Being a plaintiff is hard. Having people just turn your life upside down and examine you and force you to go through depositions and just all the crap, all the crap, turning over medical records—it's just really invasive. It really is. And so, I, I really do admire all of the the plaintiffs that have gone up against the states in these cases, because it does take a lot of fortitude to stand in the breach and to, to stand up for your rights, and, and not only your rights, for the rights of other people.
1: Yeah, but, it was so hard, so I'm so glad. It's, I'm so glad it's over for him, almost.
0: Well, today's guest is no stranger to the courtroom and has been at the forefront of fighting against anti-trans legislation for well over a decade, and I know we are both excited to see him, so let's get started and welcome him to the show.
1: As I keep saying over and over again, I'm so excited for our guest today.
0: Chase Strangio is a Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project and a nationally recognized expert on transgender rights. Chase's work includes impact litigation as well as legislative and administrative advocacy on behalf of LGBTQ people and people living with HIV across the United States. Prior to joining the ACLU, Chase was the Equal Justice Works Fellow and the Director of Prisoner Justice Initiatives at the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, where he represented transgender and gender nonconforming individuals in confinement settings. Chase co founded the Lorena Borjas Community Fund, an organization that provides bail and bond assistance to LGBTQ immigrants in criminal and immigration cases. Chase is a graduate of Northeastern University School of Law and Grinnell College. Known as the face of the whole legal battle for trans rights in the United States, Chase has been on the front lines for the fight for trans rights, arguing cases before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Everyone, please welcome Chase Strangio to the show.
1: Yay! Welcome to our show, Chase. It's truly an honor to have you on our podcast. I'm so excited. I've been excited for a long time. I have so many questions for you. I have so many questions. You know that question, if you could pick three people to invite to dinner, you are one of those three people because I want to know your point of view on so many things when it comes to grassroots organizing, advocacy, and working in systems to help make change. So my first question sounds kind of simple, but I want to know what drives you and your activism.
2: Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, It's great to be here with you both. And I mean, I don't, I think sometimes questions of drive and motivation aren't simple at all. It's really complicated and probably a, you know, complex interplay of of a lot of things, sort of why do I do the work that I do? Why have I continued to do it? How do I do it? And all of those things are really shifting all the time. And some of it probably is just inherent to who I am. I think I always had a drive to make change in various ways. To feel like there was injustice that I observed, and I wanted to be part of disrupting that. Um, and that c- took different forms at different points in my life. Uh, and then as I, as I became involved in queer and trans activism, as I went to law school. I think currently what drives me is a recognition that our legal systems are inherently flawed and violent, but we're still operating and living within the consequences of them. And so what does it mean to recognize that, but still have to contend with them? And one of the ways that I think being a lawyer and being the lawyer, a lawyer in the way I want to be a lawyer, while recognizing that reality, uh, it, it means is showing up to limit the harms and the violence that the state imposes through law on communities that are historically uh, oppressed through in particular legal systems and cultural ones that are a product of legal ones so my my what drives me is is using my access to the systems that i have by virtue of uh you know societal Access from formal education that I received from a young age, which was a product of being a you know a middle class white person who had access to good schooling under an inequitable education system in which property taxes pay for public education, and you're getting a totally like I got this. I mean, it's it's also especially poignant thinking about today the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action, finds affirmative action unconstitutional. My whole life was affirmative action in one way or another by virtue of the access that I had. You're affirmatively acted upon in different ways. Um, And that, so knowing that about myself, knowing all the ways I had access, then I, what is incumbent upon those of us with access to then think of how can we limit the violence of the systems that we have access to? And that is really what drives me as a lawyer. It drives me in my work. um, And I believe in that, not just in the context of doing queer and trans work, but in the larger project of
0: destabilizing state violence. Wow. I was, I was looking for like the three guests you would invite to dinner and you gave us like, I felt like I was in law school again. I was like, uh, right, the professor's talking really fast. I'm going to have to ask for somebody else's notes after this. Um, so you said a couple things that I, I wanted to touch on specifically as it relates to the Supreme Court's essentially striking down affirmative action and what that means, because you helped co-found the Lorena Borjas Community Fund. You were mentored by pioneers in the movement. Um, but I, I want to know, in, in light of what you're seeing and in light of what you just talked about, what are the most important lessons you learned from Lorena and others on building community, mutual aid, and paths towards liberation, again, in, in light of where we find ourselves in this moment in this country?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important question which sort of relates to the other in a sense, which is like where do you find the drive? And for me the drive is that the from the elders who have taught me over and over that we care for each other, we take care of each other when the government fails us. We create the systems of care that the government has never provided and never will. Um, and so when I think about the Supreme Court, um, the court that is routinely creating the conditions for more and more violence to flourish, whether that's through striking down section five of the Voting Rights Act, whether that's through the continued uh, set of decisions that allow for corporations to have unfettered access to whatever they want, to, to, to capital, and then to campaign capital, you know, striking down affirmative action, all of these things. We look at this court, we look at this legal system, and that's the reality. Uh, So for me, it's it's the elders, the organizers in my life who have taught me, you know, we take care of each other when the state fails uh, to take care of us. Um, And I guess like someone like Lorena, I met Lorena in uh, 2009. It was um, Obama was president, um, but ev- we lived in New York City. So we had, you know, policies at the city, state and federal level that protected LGBTQ people, at least formally. But that didn't mean that undocumented uh trans people were not being forced into removal proceedings. That didn't mean that Black trans women weren't experiencing violence on the streets of New York. Those formal legal realities meant almost nothing materially for people uh, who were in my community right here in New York City, which we would consider a progressive place to live. And so Lorena was basically my, you know, sort of the, like, she would just like hammer down my door every day and say, what are you doing for us? what are you doing for us? Um, She had this little bag and it had all her notes about everyone in her community, their immigration status, what their prior criminal convictions were, what their possibilities for immigration relief were. And I was like, wow, like, Here's this woman who herself has been subjected to so much state violence over decades out here showing up. And what are we doing as lawyers? What are we doing as lawyers who are saying we're defending trans people? We're seeking equality, but we're not seeking justice. And I think that Lorena really taught me, you know, as did Miss Major, as did Flawless Sabrina, to say, look, don't get don't get caught up in the legal demands of big organizations of mainstream legal movements um really get caught up in the needs of the community and so you know i wasn't going to step by and think that just because Obama was president, we were going to be fine at a time when there were more deportations happening than at any other previous time in history where there was such cooperation between local law enforcement and ICE. And there was so much that we could be doing. Um, and that's what led to the founding of the Lorena Borjas Community Fund, which was a bail was a bail project, a cash bail project to pay bail and bond, um, pe- particularly for people, for trans people who are living at the intersection of criminal and immigration enforcement systems and being able to say, you know, this isn't just about running to court, this is about filling in the gaps um, to help people survive in all of these areas?
1: So we live 45 minutes from the border. And so we have Mariposas Sin Fronteras down here. Um, and obviously, like, Familia is in Phoenix. Um, but it's been, it's it, like the love that comes from the work that's really hard down here is some of the most gratifying and moving. Yet last night we were at a a Pima County Pride event and I was like, I felt weird about it. But TC Tolbert was there, who's um, a trans poet. And Daniel tells me I'm not allowed to call him an elder, but he's an elder. But he builds tiny houses for the outlaw project, right? And helps mariposas uh, fix their home um, so that like everything is intact when they bring in Um, asylum seekers to like stay for free in their housing and so I'm like deeply moved by those people every single day and I just I loved hearing the story of Lorena and I loved hearing your connection to her and I think what I find most moving is that like you don't forget like I see you early on like I know you're gonna be like Lizette you're so you're like a stalker but like early on I was looking towards people when Daniel first came out and like 2015 looking towards voices that felt similar to mine because so many of these stories were not of our own right not of immigrant experience and you were saying things that made sense to me like this is how we move forward these are stories untold this is community this is what community care looks like and so I I take what you say as like truth right so when you are talking about community care you're talking about mutual aid and then you're also telling us what these bans mean right and you you've said often like that these bans were created to stop ban to stop trans kids from existing and so in order to do that it requires a systemic erasure a violent erasure that i think most parent communities have a really hard time wrapping their head around right because often it's their first time experiencing marginalization, where those of us who come from either immigrant backgrounds or or BIPOC backgrounds or marginalized in any sort of way, that system of of violence is known. I guess my question to you would be like, what do you want parents of TGNC youth to know who may see themselves as a political, who may think I'm going to change my child's identity documents and that's a that's a go we're good We live in maybe a blue state or a state with some protections. like what do you want them to know and what are things that they can do so that they can start leading helping us lead towards progress because I think often these parent communities forget that they're leaving footprints right through systems so they are adding to what is happening um, and or perpetuating what is happening in the with these small, you know, gradual thousands of footprints across the country. What do you want our parent communities to know?
2: I mean, in some sense, what I want the parent communities to know is what I want everyone to know, because we're, we're all connected. And that is to say, you can't really just protect yourself. That that's not, I mean, that's, that's really never been true, but that's really not true now. You may feel some amount of safety and security, and sure, there are people who can, through the fact that they're billionaires or whatever, insulate themselves from consequences. Although not all consequences, potentially. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of jokes there that I'm not going to go down, but nonetheless. <laughs> uh, but I think that you know there is a way where people stay very complacent and complicit. They'll say, you know, I, my, I have the means to take care of my kid, and I'm going to do that, and I'm just going to call it a day. Oh, and that might be true about trans. Uh, you know, parents of trans youth, it might be true of people who are able to move their kid from one to school to another and and, and 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 avoid curricular restrictions, whatever the case may be, they may feel they have certain amount of mobility, certain amount of uh, access to uh, health care or other things. However, we, I think, should have learned by now that things are changing very rapidly and turning, including in, in the structure of our country and the legal structures that we're operating in. It is not out of the realm of possibility that in 2024, you, you know, you have a trifecta of Republicans leading at the federal level. Should that happen, it will not matter where you live in this country because every aspect of what you know will be fundamentally changed. And the way we were gonna, are going to get to that point is by people sitting there thinking they can protect only themselves by being deliberately obtuse about the idea that restrictions and and attacks on bodily autonomy for one group are, 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 are restrictions and body, attacks on bodily autonomy for all groups. Our opponents are well coordinated. They understand these things as being connected. And the question is, Will we? And and I, and so that's a, that that's a lesson to parent communities, but it's really a lesson to everyone. It's like you may not care about trans youth, or you may only care about your child, but it's just so much bigger than that. Because these attacks are not about what they say they're about. It's not just about the bathroom. It's not even just about trans kids. It's not even just about trans people. It's about systems of power. It's about democracy and eroding what we understand democracy looks like. It's about moving governments very far to the right. It's about an imposing, um, you know, sort of crypto fascist structures in our country. So there are big implications here. Trans youth may be, a, you know, sort of a gateway drug. We may be the canaries in the coal mine, but it's not, it doesn't start and end here. So there's a long history leading up to this point, and there's a lot that will come after. And so where are we going to be in our fight?
0: That's so deep. And, and it's it's funny because a lot of what you're saying is resonating with me um, as a person of color, as a person of, of, of immigrant parents who's been in this country, who's seen the erosion of, of life and liberty for marginalized communities happening over time. And I never thought when I was having kids, I was thinking, oh, you know, you're going to inherit a world far better than mine. And I'm thinking you're going to inherit a burning planet, like a, a, a literal burning planet as the wildfires in in Canada blocking out the sky in New York are our are, are, are testament to and 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 so I just I just had to just chime in on what you just said because I in my advocacy when my kid came out I was just like, oh I'm going balls to the wall because it's not just him it's not just Daniel it's not just Libby it's all of us. All of us, I'm not even talking about trans kids anymore because it's all of us. And so my next question really goes to something that I think I know the answer to, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. You know, as a person of trans experience, as a person who has these intersectional identities that you can't put down, you, you you can't say I'm not this thing today when I step into court. But sometimes when you go into court, I imagine that it's hard to not have a, a personal stake you know, your chest swelling up because the things that you're fighting against are things that impact you personally. But how do you separate or do you separate when you're in court, when you're arguing, when you're when you're litigating, when you are fighting tooth and nail against these things? Are you fighting with from the mindset of, 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 of a of a jurist, of, of a person with, uh, you know, considerable legal understanding? Or are you fighting as the person or from the from the perspective of a person who has a personal interest and in, and in, in personal uh, liberty at stake at the outcomes of these these uh cases.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's it's sort of like I'm doing uh you know both and they can't necessarily be extricated. I think one of the like real dangerous lessons of especially I would say professional uh, you know, environments is this idea that the closer you can model like the white cisgender heterosexual way of being, the more successful you will be. And so in turn, the demand becomes like you need to become more like this and then your voice can be heard and then you will. And and a lot of times, the more like this is something like really not great. Like if you're more condescending and if you sound more like, you know, everything when you don't or if you don't listen, you know, it's like this very, you know, not and, and not to say that's exclusively true. I don't mean to be overly reductive. But, you know, law, for example, privileges a certain voice. And it's the voice of the people, the slaveholding white men who wrote the Constitution. That's the voice of law. And that's what we're told we have to emulate. But how awful to then always be trying to emulate that, to be seen as intelligent, to be seen as having a worthy voice. And so for me, I think I never want to. I never want to buy into that reality. I always want to show up as my full self and that be the benefit that be not like that doesn't mean I don't know the law. Like I want, you know, anyone can know doctrine. It's not just cis straight white men, as much as I think some institutions would like us to believe that. Obviously, that's not true. So you, you sort of you come with your excellence, but you also say that your excellence is enhanced by who you are. And you're bringing a different kind of excellence all the time. So there's that piece of it, which is to say, like, I I think I really wanted at some point was like, I'm not a trans lawyer. I'm just a lawyer who happens to be trans. And it's like, no, I am a trans lawyer. And my experience of transness impacts every single thing about me. And I mean that in the best possible way. It means I read things differently. I see things differently. And frankly, that's true of everyone. The idea that there's some like scientific law that exists outside the person is ridiculous. Everything is subjective and informed by experience. And I don't want to sort of reify the notion that it is anything other than that. And then the second point is, of course, personally, emotionally, when you go into any sort of legal battle, so to speak, or any professional context in which the thing that's being fought over is something that is inextricable from your well-being, is central to who you are. Of course, the weight of that is significant. Of course, you feel that. I think for me, the survival mechanism has really been about compartmentalizing that. If I take, if I internalize everything I read every day, like, I would be very unwell. And I probably am pretty unwell, but I would be much more unwell, like, if I was sitting here, like, list like truly absorbing it like i i I do i approach it with a like i'm reading this as someone who is figuring out the best response and it is deeply offensive but i i'm not like bringing it inside me
1: so our listeners cannot see all of our reactions but we're all (laughs) laughing and it's because i literally had a therapy session on this (sighs) where i was talking to my therapist about how like i compartmentalized Mm -hmm. life and i was like i must not be well like that's that's gotta be. And he's, I was like, Oh God, like, do I have to do some work? And he's like, it's neurotic. It's part of it. It's <laughs> It is neurotic, but it's working. And, you know, like he was like, you have to keep yourself healthy and you have to do what your mind needs in these moments of crisis. And so I just want, you to know, welcome to the compartmentalization club. We need t-shirts. <laughs> um, I think so many of us function in that way. So
0: but what's so funny at the same time is that Literally every time I've ever seen Chase in person, and even in this in this little Zoom call we're on, there's always a smile on his face. There's always a mischievous twinkle in his eye. I even remember when we were at Transprom and you know, you had your bow tie, and there was that little oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I can't remember their name, but there was this little child with a bow tie. The bow tie, I know. I don't horse, yes. And you
1: McCartney
0: like twins, mini me's, and you were just smiling. And all day long, every time I saw you in every single interaction, you were just ebullient. You were just smiling and so joyful. And that's what I get out of you all the time is this just unbridled, unfettered joy, notwithstanding what I know to be a tremendous burden of arguing these horrific horrific cases in some of the biggest courts you know in the land and yet notwithstanding the fact that you're probably doing a lot of work on yourself you exude so much joy and positivity that it just it's it's infectious and i think anyone who comes into contact with you walks away with like wow i'm so pleased that i i had an opportunity to interact with you so i just had to add that in because it is hard it is hard like i i know there's times where i'm just like in tears watching the news or listening to the latest thing or that that's happened. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is the life my child is is walking into. But I don't, you know, lose hope because I know that there are people who are actively out here fighting like you and Lissette and myself just every day to make sure that the life that they do lead is positive and has some, you know, silver lining to all the foolishness that's going on. So just my two cents.
2: Well, no, and I appreciate that, Stephen. Thank you. I mean, I I really do. I think one of the tropes of transness is that we're like downtrodden and miserable all the time. And so, and I'm just not. Like, I, I I think that like my, I I enjoy my community immensely. I enjoy my work immensely As, as much as I wish I didn't have to do it. I will find a way to have fun in almost any circumstance, even the worst ones. And I think it's incredibly like disarming for the opponents who are expecting me to come in with this like, yeah, I don't know what, but even I think like I remember I testified in a committee in Tennessee and and the committee, you know, ended up moving the bill forward. Of course, it was like there was no chance. But but there were a, a few of the committee members, Republicans came up to me and were like, really great job. And I was like, well, it's not a performance. But in, a, but in any event, I think they were like, wait, my whole concept of this is somehow off. And like when I'm in court and I'm like or I'm deposing an expert quote unquote expert from the other side and they're whole they're sitting there spewing about how trans people are miserable and this that but I'm right there in front of them I think they're a little bit like it's disconcerting for them in like a way that is deeply
1: satisfying for me I mean Daniel I think would find (laughs) so much love for that um Another question we have for you is in Arkansas, the ACLU was able to get anti-trans bills in the state invalidated and the court cited violations of equal protection due process and First Amendment as central to their ruling. How do you see the court's ruling impacting other challenges to these laws in other states? Is there any uh, precedential value to this ruling? Do you think it might stop what we're seeing? What are your views so you can share with us? I
2: mean, so first, I said this a number of times recently, which is lawmakers don't care if their legislation is unconstitutional. They just don't. I don't know what we're wrong in our system, but like you go in and you're lobbying and you're like, this is unconstitutional for X, Y, or Z reasons. They do not care. I think it's a, a combination of feeling like they have the courts on their side at various points, that they don't mind being sued. Like they, in fact, like so many, especially in state legislatures, don't care the burden they're imposing on the taxpayers, despite their rhetoric otherwise. So thinking about that, like, no, I don't think, you know, having a losing pattern in court and lower courts changes the practice of legislatures. Obviously, if you win at the Supreme Court, the legislature, you know, they're not going to then pa- like pass an identical piece of legislation that has just been, like, ruled unconstitutional by the highest court. It's like, in 2016, they weren't passing marriage bans. That ship had sailed from, for them. So I think, obviously, it depends. But looking at just, you know, some lower court successes does not deter lawmakers. That said... I think what it does do is create momentum in the courts, because even if the lawmakers don't look at what the courts are saying, the courts look at what the courts are saying. And and so, so far, we have lower like district court decisions. The Arkansas decision is important because it was the first decision that was final. It was it went to trial. It was litigated for two years every bit of facts were tested before the court. The judge made 62 pages of fact finding that is going to be incredibly important as that case goes up on appeal, as well as, you know, sort of as a as something to show to other courts. So it isn't binding on any court, but it has an impact both as it goes up on appeal and then nationally. At this point, we have six courts that have enjoined gender affirming uh, care bans. Um, Six out of six. So and with a, you know and that includes Florida, Alabama, Indiana, Arkansas, Kentucky and Tennessee. We're talking across the country totally different judges appointed by different presidents um including some by 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 Trump um looking at the evidence and saying no this state has not this doesn't this isn't right and so I think that that is really important If not for the legislatures, for the public discourse, because what's what I will what I will say and what I do tell people is we are having far more success before conservative judges in Tennessee and Alabama than we are in the pages of The New York Times and part of that is we're putting on the evidence, real evidence, not lies, not misinformation, not distortions. We're putting on the evidence. And when presented with the evidence and the other side's evidence, the judges are unanimous so far in saying this law is not constitutional. Um, And I think that's really important because we're going to keep, you know, these are going to go up in the courts in a number of different ways. And so we want that momentum. We want, if it does go to the Supreme Court in one or two years, we want the court to look down in the country and say, All these judges are ruling against these laws, but we also want them to look at a country that isn't talking about trans people in the way that we're talking about trans people right now. So that's part of the culture change work that almost feels more urgent. Like we're winning, you know, knock on wood, we're not going to win all of them. But when we have a chance to really like tell the story, we win in court. What we haven't been
0: able to win is in the pages of the center left media. So you raise a really valid point about just the success that um, the ACLU has been having across the country in different courts of you know different shades red blue what have you and it's it seems like and, and and correct me if I'm wrong but it seems like there are themes that are emerging from the successes that you're having that are instructive to how litigation will follow should these things actually get to trial Um, Do you think that that's an accurate assessment of what's happening um, in in these courts? And do you, it sounds like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that you think that there can be positive outcomes based on the themes that you're seeing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, I think that we're able to say, you know, I think the two main sort of themes as uh, uh, one factual, one legal are sort of, look, what the claims they make about this care just aren't true. Like, you know, they they say it's risky. They say it, you know, isn't studied. Um, they, you know, talk about all of these reasons why the patient population is different. Everyone's really just mentally ill. So, so we sort of, we put on evidence that's like, well, that's just not true. Um, they're distorting all of those things. And then there's the legal point and the sort of logical point, which is, let's say even most of that was true and we don't concede that it was. That actually doesn't justify these type of laws because Almost all forms of medication have side effects. Medication carries risks. Some medication can affect fertility. Some medication you can regret. So if if you sort of take it all away and say, okay, fine, you believe this all is true, you still lose. Because that you can't just do that with one type of medical care if that's the reason. If you're so concerned about fertility, why are you allowing intersex surgeries? If you're so concerned about, uh, you know, breastfeeding then why are you allowing breast reduction for you know so it's like all of these different questions don't get answered in the way you know because and we know the reason it's because they don't that's all disingenuous what they're saying they just want to harm trans people like they can't say that exactly in court but you know once you sort of show the pretext that is, you know, that all the arguments, pretext of all the arguments, the judges sort of see it and they don't need to find animus because that's hard. It's hard in law to, to make that what you're what you're what you're going for. I'm like, you know, I'm big on, you know, we don't even have to talk about their intentions because you just refute what they say and and that's enough.
1: But I will say that when I read section three of the Florida opinion, where the judge was like, come on you know, that this comes from bias. I was clapping like, yes. Um, some of the opinions have been clear, which I think is helpful down the line. I think with public discourse, like what you were saying with the way we talk about, um, access to care and trans people in general, I I've been happy to see that in some of the opinions. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there's so much in there that's so helpful, both for the courts and for the public. Um, and there's different ways that it can be done. I think one of the realities of sort of how you engage, particularly in civil rights litigation, is the more conservative the court, the more uncomfortable with the idea they are naming bias. You know, they like, they're they're way more uncomfortable with being called a racist than racism. You know, it's like all, like, it's just like all, I'm like, (laughs) I was like, shouldn't the thing that makes you uncomfortable be these systems that are deeply harming people? But no, no, it's just like simply like being calling. name calling, that's the biggest problem. (laughs) So so it's like, you you know, at the end of the day too, we have to remember the judges are are people um, and they're operating in their little universes, oftentimes very isolated from, you know, sort of more, diverse, let's say, realities, and and in that sense, I really mean diverse, like in terms of thinking, like they're around other judges, like talk about a narrow world. Um, So you really have to break through and you have to break through in different ways. Um, And part of the way you break through is just to have a massive cultural breakthroughs, massive changes in culture.
1: Well, we couldn't interview you and not ask you questions about trans prom because you are the fairy godfather of trans kids. kids Mm to do this. So I have I guess a few questions because you were instrumental in making this happen. I mean it wouldn't have happened without you clearly. So my question is what was the experience for you? Well I have three. Why did you say yes? Because although I'm so grateful you did. And what do you what do you see for the future generation of TGNC kids? So
2: how so I guess I mean why did I say yes? I I'll start there. I um, I don't I I don't know, honestly. like I think I I really was sort of like in this state of things really deteriorating really quickly. And at, and at the time, I was really overwhelmed by the volume of work that I knew was coming for me. I was like, oh no, we're gonna have a lot of new lawsuits and these cases are exhausting and what's happening and it's way worse than I thought. and I knew it was going to be bad. So I was in this moment of sort of just, Spiraling, but I will say that one of the other like grim, sort of reality checks at that moment was that our tactics weren't working, you know it wasn't working to lobby these legislatures it wasn't working to just prep people to testify, it wasn't working to even run ads in the state, you know, a lot of our tactics that you know work to varying degrees at different points were not working, and so I was eager in the same way that you all were eager to find something else to do, to find something else to disrupt the landslide of attacks, to disrupt the toxicity of the discourse, which I have been complaining about since at least 2015. I mean, I've been talking about the New York Times, the failures of the New York Times, the failures of the Atlantic, the failures of The Economist, like all of the ways in these publications that consider themselves and their readers who consider themselves part of the center-left are just really compromising the well-being of, of trans people. So that, so I, so I was now looking at the failure of our typical tactics to stop anti-trans legislation, and then just the continued frustration with the way in which popular discourse was continuing to devolve, so to speak. I wanted something new, and and I feel like we all together sort of collectively created the spark that made it feel so worthwhile to all of us. Um, I think it could have gone in any number of directions, and it came maybe from our own jadedness, despair uncertainty and all these things. And then you can sort of animate together and make something that's, you know, exciting and energizing. Um, and that's how it was for me, it, you know, throughout the period of time. And it, admittedly, I had a lot of other things going on, but it was always an exciting and energizing thing to to dream about, to think about, to collaborate on. And then the day of um, itself was absolutely, you know, everything and more that I could have dreamed of. And the lasting impact of it, the images, the memories, the networks of people that were connected. To me, that's that's what it's all about. That's what the, the future of trans youth, non-binary youth is all about. It's, you know, sort of building and dreaming beyond our, our wildest dreams. Because at the end of the day, what we want is expansion of boundaries and ideas, expansion of what's possible And that means they're going to transcend even what we think of as possible and creating things um, for the world. And I'm excited for that. And I can still consider my job to be to limit the restraints and the constrictions on their ability to dream their best dreams.
1: And then our last question, which is kind of similar to that, but like, and it's something that Daniel has, has asked too. Uh, From you, because Daniel's like, I want to know what Chase dreams of the future. Like, what is your vision in of of a world for trans people?
2: I mean, and similarly, I I almost want to be surprised by it. It's the world where we continue to get to uh you know show up with new forms of community, of desire, of art, of creativity. I, I will say that the things I've seen in our communities I couldn't have dreamed of five, 10 years ago. Um that fr- from everything from like art that people have created to sort of caretaking that people have developed, uh, for demand from like institutional demands that people have made. Um, you know, I really I'm learning all the time. And that's what I dream of is something that I couldn't imagine in the present because we're moving forward in our thinking that instead of saying, oh, my God, look, we're moving backwards, we're re-entrenching the gender binary and we're doing gender reveals like every day. Like I want the opposite of that. (laughs) I want the I want a world where you don't say, oh, my God, we're moving backwards, where you're almost a little bit anxious and excited about how much you don't know and how much feels possible.
1: Thank you for that. That's beautiful.
0: Oh my goodness. Chase, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been probably one of my more enjoyable podcasts and we've had some really great guests. So, that's saying quite a lot. Um we know you're just so busy and the fact that you made time for us today means everything to us. So, I just want to just for myself only say I just want to say thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you both for making time and being flexible with me. And it was just so nice to see you. I said, I miss our Tuesday meetings. I know me too. It was so nice to have something beautiful to do instead of what I do normally.
0: So Chase, if you can stick around for our next segment, Allies and Assholes, please do. Otherwise, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay,
1: thanks. Cheers.
0: Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand, and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today?
1: Our ally of the week is Vice President Kamala Harris. The Vice President made a historic visit to the Stonewall Inn, the location of the June 28, 1969 standoff between police and patrons of the bar. The subsequent uprising sparked the current fight for LGBTQ rights and liberation. The vice president toured several locations prior to her stop at Stonewall Inn and reaffirmed the Biden-Harris commitment to support the LGBTQIA community in the face of attacks by GOP state legislators and right-wing extremists. At a gala after her visit, the vice president said, there is nothing more patriotic than celebrating freedom, which includes the freedom to love who you love and to be who you are.
0: Better work, Vice President. And this is why Vice President Kamala Harris is our ally of the week.
1: Yay!
0: Okay. Congratulations to Vice President Harris. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week without the shadow of a doubt has to go to those six conservative justices on the Supreme Court for their absolutely pathetic, abysmal, and ass-backward rulings on at least the last three cases that have come down from the Supreme Court.
1: What a disappointment from student loan relief to affirmative action. I mean, that's a whole other... No, no, not affirmative action as a whole. Just race being Disruptive a distinction in affirmative, <laughs> affirmative action like fuckery to yesterday's ruling which stated that a business could discriminate against providing services to lgbtqia people should it conflict with their religious beliefs
0: and and just so we're clear that is the most dangerous ruling that came down because it literally Permits discrimination. You can replace LGBTQ with anything, with Black, with Jewish, with blue eyes, with any handicap. You know, you can replace what they just decided. If I don't like a gay person, I, as a business owner, don't have to provide them services. If I don't like a Black person, gay person, lesbian person, trans person, queer person, Black person trans person black trans woman latino trans like if i don't like anybody i can say this is a violation of my religion and i'm not going to serve you
1: yeah they just have to be like it doesn't rock with my belief of jesus like what is this that is not democracy
0: and not only is it not democracy it's like literal lazy jurisprudence that's the part that bothers me again I wish I didn't go to law school because then I could look at these decisions and be like, oh, they know better, but they don't know better. They are twisting the law. They are twisting the law. Like These dudes are actually creating law from the courts. They are violating their oaths of office because they're not supposed to be legislating. They are not supposed to be just making shit up. And that's what they've been doing time and time again, these rulings. And the problem is, it's not just me. If you look at other legal experts, if you look at other people who are constitutional law experts, for example, from Harvard, from Yale, from UPenn, from any institution that has lawyers who study this, jurists who study this, they're like, the court is going way out in left field to arrive at these decisions. And they're being so blatantly obvious that it's just like, you know, yay, white males, let's go let's go white man. let's do it. And there's nothing else we can say about it. There's nothing we can do about it.
1: And people, well, and this is the thing, look, I don't know all the ins and outs of like, governance in this field, but just because there's no rule that states that corruption is okay, right? Like we know now that, you know, certain justices, have been getting kickbacks, have been getting money. So if we know that and we know it's fuckery, why can't we change the rules? They are. They're changing the rules.
0: So you need to have intestinal fortitude, Congress. You need to have intestinal fortitude, Senate. You need to be able to say this shit is stinky and won't fly. But they won't do it. They don't they won't do it. When Biden was talking about we're gonna change the number of Supreme Court justices, people were all up in arms. Oh, how dare you! Now we're changing the rules. Like, do you see what's happening? Do you see what's happening in the highest court of the land? These motherfuckers are grifters, they're corrupt, they're they're not engaging in the ethical behavior or adhering to the ethical standards that the members of the highest court in the land should be held to. The appearance of impropriety is enough for any person to recuse themselves. But not only are they not recusing themselves, and it's like, it's not they didn't just recuse themselves for one case. There are cases, there are multiple cases, oh, that specific individual wasn't in front of my, in front of my court. But his businesses were, his companies were, companies within which he had an interest were, and that's mm-hmm. not enough? Like, the fact that Clarence Thomas didn't recuse himself when his wife was all up with the January 6th insurrectionist. Like, are you kidding me? mm Are you kidding me? And then his dude Any has is... left and right, buying his mama house. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Any it's gross. Any court judge would have been, like, just slapped with so many ethics violations. But these dudes, nope. Yo, you can miss me with all that. You can miss me with all of that.
1: It's a disappointment and also not a shock.
0: It's not a shock, but it's also setting a very scary precedent for where we are going as a country. Like, again, I'm like, how are we moving backwards? How do we come from civil rights and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which said, hey, this country fucked over black and brown people and we're going to do better and we're going to put things in place to make sure that the debt this country owes it's the people of color the the, and the 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 descendants of slaves are going to benefit they're going to benefit from the history of jim crow they're going to benefit from the history of redlining they're going to benefit from the history of not being able to get fha loans they're going to benefit from the history of not being able to get any farm loans they're going to benefit from being you know put into horrible communities with no services like all of the things that this country has done to black people we're going to correct these justices have the audacity to be like race based considerations in education are illegal and it violates the concept of. shut the fuck up you are fucking tripping how dare you how dare you yep it's like you live roberts where do you live alito where do you live fucking clarence thomas where do you live where everything's equal because i am not seeing it no no
1: no it's crazy and honestly like so much happened this week we have a full episode of assholes of the week we need to have just lined
0: up we need to have an assholes of the week episode literally not even of the week just an assholes episode that's what we're gonna do we're gonna do an assholes episode of our show that's 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 a great idea
1: on the books because honestly it wasn't just the supreme court like you know um uh DeSantis's uh, anti-immigrant bill went into effect today like there's just so much happening right Google stepped away from supporting um, a drag show because uh, they got complaints from the Christian right like at some point people have to stand up for what's right and the only the only institution I saw do that was Harvard. They said that they would continue yep
0: yep. But again, it's like, you know, pride ended two days ago and we're acting as if everything's good. Like, oh, you know, you don't have to think about that anymore. Mm-mm. It's all bad. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. OK. All right. Oh, God. Okay, God. Rant over. Rant over. Rant over. OK. Um, and that's why those six justices and Clarence Thomas is the first like he is the biggest asshole of the week but the rest of them all get that asshole of the week because they're just it's pathetic and it's embarrassing well that's our show for today folks I want to thank today's guest Chase Strangio for spending time with us today and of course I would like to thank the superhero of this crew and my partner in crime, through here for joining me as usual.
1: Thanks, Steven. I love sharing this space with you. And more than anything, appreciate the opportunity to have these important conversations on the importance of why we need to show up as advocates in our children's lives. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thank you for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast.
0: And as usual, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you need to do to stay up to date with everything we're doing here on the Parent Advocate Podcast.
1: Bye! Bye.
0: If you are thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org.
1: You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.